Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode features one of the three guests on my hour-long NPR show, heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the family-owned foreman pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. Good enough for you to eat, but your cats won't appreciate that. I have another fabulous book from... The women who wrote the FBI canine novels under the pseudonym or the pen name of Sarah Driscoll. And one of them is here with me, Jen Dana. Unfortunately, her wonderful co-author, Anne Vanderland, passed away unexpectedly. But this is another of their wonderful books, the seventh. Is that right, Jen? This is the seventh book you gals wrote together? It is the seventh book in the series, and, and thank you very much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, and the books are a pleasure because they come from a place of such deep knowledge and intimate understanding of working dogs, search and rescue dogs, and the relationship between dogs and their handlers. And I only recently, when setting up the appointment, the interview time with you, discovered that you have a day job that is probably one of the most interesting and completely different from what you're writing about jobs that I've ever heard about. And I think it's important for people to appreciate not only that you have a very demanding and interesting other job, but what you're doing for all of us in terms of COVID and studying infectious disease Um at your university in Canada. Can you talk a minute about that? Because I think that deserves a a lot of praise as well as your writing. Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, Yeah, I work at uh, Canadian University, um, one that's, you know, very heavily research-based. And I work as a lab manager in an infectious diseases research group where we study West Nile virus, dengue fever, Zika, uh, influenza, and as you can imagine, two and a half years ago, did a giant pivot to COVID-19, which we saw coming in about January of 2020 and started writing grants for. So when everything closed down in March of 2020, our lives just became, we just went totally into overdrive. So it's been it's been a, a, an interesting two and a half years. Well, Never you know, moment. yeah, we, we don't really think we on the on the you're on the front lines. We're just sort of the army, right? The the, the people who were deployed into the world. I, I just think it, it's hard for us to remember that there are researchers so hard at work on things that affect our lives, uh, are even staying alive um, so much. Well, and, and a lot of researchers. And I'm, you know, it, I mean, that's totally different from my writing life, but just being a part of this scientific community 
everybody has pulled together. It's been amazing. It's, I mean, it's been an amazing um, experience from that respect, just because of how everybody, no, there's been no infighting. Everybody has just sort of all pulled together in the same direction with one common goal. And it's, it's really been uh, really fantastic. Well, that's, that's really comforting um, and inspiring for all of us to know. It's very different from what happens in still waters. People are not pulling together. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious! What's what's wonderful about it? Many things are wonderful about it, and and certainly the main character's relationship with her dog and and sensitivity to to her dog and and other dogs she's had before is so meaningful and touching. But the competition between this, I mean, you set up the story, you tell it a little bit, the setup, because I'm going to ask you to read a bit from it. But the idea that all of these volunteer search and rescue canine teams are coming to do a competition to improve their skills at water work, which is something fascinating that I didn't know existed. Dogs who can pick up scent that is beneath a body of water. Who knew a dog could do that? But they're all at each other's literal throats in this in this story that you tell. And is this an, an imagined idea you have that search and rescue people, rather than working all together for a common good, which they do when they're on a, a tragic situation, but that they would be sort of have their knives out for each other? Well, and that, that sort of is, is the crux of, of what was unexpected about this situation. This is a very realistic situation that um, teams like the FBI's Human Scent Evidence Team, regular retraining isn't expected, like in many careers, it's an expected part of their job, that they should be going for retraining, they're right. keeping their skills really sharp, and they're, you know, grease lightning on land. You give them a land search and, and they are there, whether it's, you know, head up, um, scenting or whether it's tracking, trailing, any of that stuff, they're great at it. But if they hit a lake, the search ends for them. So their idea is that it would be great if they could pick up this alternate search technique, which tends to be more along the range of decomposition dogs rather than live find dogs, which is what they are. Still, it's a scent, you know, it's scent training, and they thought it would be good to, to be able to pick this up as well. But as often happens at these training weekends, there's a friendly competition that goes along with it. And as you said, I mean, these are groups that if they all showed up at a hurricane, they would all be pulling yes. together. And so it ends up being a little unexpected when there's a little more competition that ha between the, the handlers and, you know, between the dog teams than um, Meg Jennings or, you know, her, her work partner, Brian Foster, sort of saw coming. And, and certainly that we as readers saw coming. I almost was laughing out loud when in the beginning they're all introduced to each other and they're very august bodies of you know law enforcement the FBI and local sheriffs and all kinds of very serious law enforcement type people and they're dissing each other's breed of dog and that was so funny <laughs> when they were putting down a lab like yeah right that lab's not going to do anything and my bloodhound's better than your german shepherd and do you do you are you knowledgeable and aware that this really takes place? Because it's so realistic. I thought either she's got the world's greatest imagination or she's been a fly on the wall. I have not been a fly on the wall, but it's just if you sort of study human nature. I mean, you you get people, competition, is it, it can tend to bring out the worst in some oh, people. Yeah. Where you'd all be pulling together for a crisis, all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 I want to win this. And so you're sort of like nitpicking at the other people. Or killing so that, them. Sort of or killing nature. them. I yeah, mean, well, or, yeah. or killing them, as it turns out in the end. But uh, the description also of the 
the beginning of, of the first search where her dog goes just stops and kind of loses his way. And another dog is disqualified mm -hmm. for peeing on the course. And that yes. was really so interesting. How did you learn that fact? That all came from Anne. Because did it? Anne uh, had done all the nose work training um, with her uh, her dog, Hawk. Uh, sorry, sorry, Kane. <laughs> Wrong name. Um, she had done all this nose work with, with Kane. And so she had done some of these training weekends and not the competition aspect of it, but, but sort of understood to a greater degree than I did how some of these things worked and the, the, the getting disqualified for peeing on the course. That was, that was a, an idea that had come directly from her. It was, a, it was a great idea. And also what was really cool about it was that when our, our heroes say, yeah, but then why would the dog pee on the course? Something inspired that mm -hmm. dog to pee. So did someone set that dog up for failure? And then you get the sense yeah, of, exactly. wow, people because are so Machiavellian, be, right? Yeah, because that would be very unusual in a highly trained dog for them to do something like that. And I guess it's sort of like before a racehorse runs, it, thoroughbreds are taught to pee on command in their stall. So, mm -hmm. they, so they don't yeah. have to pee on course, which would certainly distract them from running as fast as they possibly can. And the exactly. working dogs also, right, are taught to pee or even um, defecate before they do a training. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. So this, as a competition, most nose work competitions are very short. They're two or three minutes maximum. We sort of stretched this one because we wanted it to be out in the middle of nowhere. Right, right. The original idea for the book was basically it was going to be, you know, the FBI canine version of a locked room mystery. Yes, So that yes. they were basically just stuck out in the wilderness. So we had a let space, so we wanted to use it. And you did. You used it to great effect. I picked out a section for you to read because, boy, you, you do such an amazing job of depicting what it's like to follow one of these dogs and to only be a two-legged human. But I guess the the really big message in the book is that no matter how good the dog is, it's the human reading the dog, understanding that dog's signifiers of what it's found and, and, and how it tells you that, noticing all these subtleties, not the actual moment of the find that might be a bark or a sit, but all the little stuff that just makes it come so alive and feels so much like if we're paying close attention to just our own charming but useless dogs, that we pick up a lot of stuff <laughs> about them too. So I'd love to have you sort of set the scene and then read uh, this little passage just so people get a sense of, of your the wonderful dynamic energy of your writing. Thank you. So this scene comes fairly early on. Um, the first the first bit of the book is their very first water training session. But then there's supposed to be these daily competitive runs, you know, three of them through the weekend. And this is the very first one. And this is Meg and Hawk out for the very first time in the wilderness. There is a scent source that has been hidden somewhere in the forest and they are supposed to find it. And so they are, you know... Hawk basically has his head, and um, Meg is coming along with him as he is trying to find this particular scent source. Hawk, come. Quickly, judging the easiest and safest route down to the riverbed, Meg led the way, following a series of ledges and rocky outcroppings to drop down below. What she did in 90 seconds, Hawk did in 30. Show off. You're going to beat me here, too. 
with Mihawk. She wound her way across the rocky riverbed, staying atop the larger rocks as the water rushed around them. Meg picked her way carefully, selecting each rock and testing her weight on it to make sure it wouldn't roll underfoot, whereas Hawk gleefully jumped from rock to rock, sure-footed in every movement. As always, it made Meg glad for the hour she and Brian spent taking the dogs to parks and playgrounds to run around climbing sets and over stone walls. The agility he showed in each outing made him confident in the real world. She wouldn't have him any other way. Partway across, Hawk paused, his nose angled high, sampling the air, and elation punched through Meg. Still has the scent. They made it to the far side, and then Hawk led the way up to the top in a series of leaps as Meg steadily climbed behind him. Straightening to stand, Meg clipped on his leash. Okay, Hawk, find it. They were off again, back into the woods, pushing through branches and dancing around trees as they jogged up a steep rise. Hawk faltered as they topped the rise, first starting in the expected direction, then abruptly doubling back. He stopped, his head swinging first in one direction, then the other. Hawk, what's wrong? It wasn't unheard of for him to lose the scent. It had happened before, but usually he signaled that loss with a whine. Now he was silent. Studying him, Meg could only identify his behavior as confusion. An obstruction blocking the scent, so it's weaker in this location? A second scent cross-polluting the air? Meg scanned the terrain upwind. Part of her job as the handler was to logic out any challenges the search presented. Obstacles like a building or a large hill could direct scent up and over their heads, causing Hawk to miss the scent altogether. Or, depending on wind speeds, if the scent fell on the other side of the obstacle, swirling eddies could form at ground level, and the scent exiting the eddy could go in any direction. It was a mild day, starting to border on cool now, so convection, hot air rising and taking scent with it, wouldn't play a part. But the terrain itself, all hills and valleys to obstruct or channel the wind, increased the difficulty of the search. But this was what they did. They knew how to work this. She and Hawk were standing on top of the hill, so the scent should have been blowing directly over them. And while they'd just been in a hollow, the ground-up wind was relatively flat. Hawk had already brought them through the worst of the terrain so far. Meg crouched down beside Hawk, running a hand down his back soothingly. Hawk, you're doing great. Keep it up. She knew he didn't understand all her words. He was smart, but no dog was fluent in English. But he absolutely understood her tone and what her touch conveyed. Love. Trust partnership. And most important in this moment, patience to get the job done right. You have the scent, buddy. Find it. Find the scent. Hawk took three steps forward as Meg straightened, then paused, changed direction, took two more steps, stopped again. Then he seemed to settle, picked a direction and settled into a trot. Meg relaxed fractionally. He had the scent again. But 45 seconds later, he didn't. Meg was entirely baffled. She'd never seen him behave like this before. He seemed lost. It's just it's just such a wonderful passage to give a sense of them on the go and working together and this communication between them that all of the dogs and handlers have, except for the one really horrible handler and how horrible she is to her dog, um, and then yes, exactly. turns the tables on Meg and accuses Meg of being horrible to her dog. It's, it's, it's very compelling. It's like, oh, no. Now she's, you know, now she's going to, and the whole time Meg feels she's in trouble, that she's going to be blamed for things for which she's blameless. But as it turns out, that woman winds up dead. So it's her word against yep. a dead lady's word who sent an email. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's, it, it is truly 
that kind of, you know, closed room Agatha Christie out in the wild, but more interesting than Agatha Christie, actually. Agatha Christie's a little yeah. a little kind of plodding. This is thrilling. It's really exciting. Oh, thank you. I think that the the sense of these dogs and who they are and their individual personalities comes across so wonderfully. And and the the search for a scent underwater of decomposing flesh and they're sure that he doesn't find it, Hawk, when he does find it. And they think, well, what is it, like a you know, a raccoon that's rotting? It's really wonderful, that the doubting of the dog and the dog being just brilliant at what he does. And I think yeah, that— Yeah, too, too good for what they thought he'd be capable that's of. That's right. He, he really out, outshone himself. And the book is wonderful. I, I know you have more FBI canine novels coming that you'll be doing solo— and I cannot recommend Still Waters enough. It's wonderful. It's a great, it's a great reading experience for men too. N- not that, not that a woman character isn't interesting to men, but it's just so, it's so outdoorsy and so intense and so you know like militaristic what they have to do and how they have to do it. So, it's a, across all genders a wonderful ex- reading experience. And I just I wish you Godspeed in doing more books on your own. You obviously know these characters and you understand the terrain, both emotional and physical, so well. It's really a joy to read. And thank you also for your wonderful research work on all of our behalf to try and keep us all as safe as we can be in these challenging times, Jen. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will support their products because they stand behind my mission, which is to educate and inspire while entertaining. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. They make many non-chemical products for the inside and outside of your pets, as well as innovative foods like no hide, and the hybrid dry food wisdom, which sometimes is all that my blue wimer on or Maisie will eat. My other sponsor is Cradle, which makes CBD calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp, formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. My Wanda Weimaraner couldn't get through thunderstorms without their Cradle Melts. And I'm grateful to Evermore Pet Food, which is privately owned by two extraordinary women who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It is higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this one guest version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2, and we'll listen to other episodes sometime soon.